Welcome to episode 106 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for May 29th, 2020. Recording live from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC podcast is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and Intelair. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Joining me from our studio in Spencerport, New York, is John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Also joining us are Lori Rodericks from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. She is our Director of Clinical Services for AHS, and in Rochester, New York, Alex Borneman, Director of Operations for AHS, Judy D'Ambrosio, Director of Educational Services for AHS, and Jenna Alvarez, Senior Nurse Consultant for AHS. From Lockport, New York, Jim Masters, Life Safety Consultant for AHS. In Atlanta, Georgia, Zach Kalaritis, Financial Consultant for AHS. And from Franklin, North Carolina, Christina Benton, President of Coding Compliance Management. So welcome, everybody. So I, I thought that it would be appropriate for me to use this outer space thing <coughs> behind me here, <laughs> since people have been telling me I'm in outer space. What do you think? How do you like my new camera, by the way? Looks great. Nobody seems impressed. <laughs> I've been waiting for four months for this camera, and nobody's <laughs> impressed. Because you have a new camera every week. It doesn't get exciting anymore. Well, but this one, this one allows me to... Oh, you can see my Diet Coke over there. Yeah, yeah. Or you can completely. Oh boy. You doing a soda commercial? (laughs) See, I can completely scan. So poor Sue there. Yeah. Better half. There you go. Oh, that was. (laughs) So for those of you that are listening, uh, you know, via the uh, the Podbean and not seeing the picture, I was just scanning around the the studio here. What you're missing. That's right. All the stuff you're missing. So. Yes, uh, we keep uh, putting more money into uh, all of our equipment here. We've become quite popular, actually. It's been amazing. We, we're well over 20,000. We hit 20,000 about a week and a half ago. Now we're uh, edging close to 21,000 downloads. So uh, needless to say, we're growing quite quite quickly. And, and of course, we, uh, we have uh, all of those wonderful sponsors who uh, I've invited all of them to join us today to see if anybody wanted to speak, but everybody was so busy. Our, our problem is that we... When we decide to do a live podcast, it, you know, it's usually kind of very quickly that we uh, we put it together, and uh, not everybody can join us, but we'll have them on, you know, shortly. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank goodness it's Friday. I'm assuming everybody is. Uh, I, I decided to do this at two o'clock instead of three o'clock because I thought it might be more likely that people will join us because afterwards everybody's going to happy hour, of course, virtually. <laughs> um, anybody have any interesting stories? Anything going on? Yeah, that's kind of the way our lives are now. Uh, I guess the big news is, Sue, you actually travel next week, so first first yep. time out. Yep, going to Ohio. Yep, and Alex and I go on Monday to our new client around the corner from us here in Rochester, so um, we're, we're getting out. Um, yep. So it's uh, it's about time we finally get on the road here, so it's been a long time. <clears throat> i got to get away from the puppy for a while, I think. So, <laughs> so Sue, why don't we start with a little yeah, bit of... Are... Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Sue. Sorry, I was just going to say, those will be our second and third uh, time yeah. visits uh, well, you know, post-COVID. I think so, yeah. One of the things that's been interesting, we've had quite a number of conversations. That we've been, between Alex and Jenna and myself and Sue, we've been on uh, um, uh, Zoom sessions almost all day long. 
um, is just how much we can do virtually. And now uh, we're actually going to be doing virtual using Zoom, the same system that we use for the podcast here and uh, um, you know our daily meetings is uh, we're going to be using that on people's cell phones so that they can do a virtual walkthrough. So we're going to try that a couple times next week to uh, walk around and do the types of physical inspections that we normally do in person. Of course, it won't be the same. Um, but, um, you know, one thing that we talked about is, you know, sometimes we only get out to our clients once a month or once a quarter and these zoom sessions, you know, like quick half hour, uh, walkthroughs, I think we can, we can do more frequently if necessary. It might actually end up being a little bit more, uh, useful to our clients, a little more frequency when it comes to issues that need to be dealt with that more frequently than monthly or quarterly. So we'll see how that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sue, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, two conferences? Okay, so ASCA 2020's Virtual Conference and Expo is happening live on July 9th and 10th and will be available on demand until October 31st. For more than two decades, ASCA's annual conference has remained the premier can't-miss event for ASC community. And this year's virtual conference is no different. Just like ASCA's in-person events, the ASCA 2020 Virtual Conference and Expo offers nearly 50 educational sessions, access to more than 100 exhibitors, and unique virtual networking opportunities with hundreds of your peers. What is this? <laughs> I, I was, I was just All about... dinging is going on. <laughs> um, Sorry. That's okay. So go to ASCAassociation.org for more information. That's uh, ASCAssociation.org. Oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> and uh, you, you have a session. Yeah, I, I recorded two of them. Uh, I think it was uh, two Fridays ago. I oh, mean, the weeks just run on. Um, I recorded them recently. I had actually a lot of fun. Um, I'm not so sure the people that were recording it for me were having fun, though, because I kind of messed up a couple times. Um, and uh, they have to record 60 sessions, so they have to go in and edit all these things. So and one of the things was my your cell phone. phone going off in the <laughs> middle of the thing, even though I thought everything kind was Kind of your off. trademark. It is. So the way these sessions are going to work is they're all pre-recorded, but we will be on. So when my session is, go- is live on, I think it's on um, July 11th, I will be on monitoring the chat and I think people can type in their questions and then I would respond to them in real time through the chat so it's a little awkward because I think I'm I'm much better about answering in person you know than than doing it than typing in I I don't know how that's going to work but a little little awkward but I think you know it'll work um and I am looking forward to it I hopefully it'll be uh, beneficial and the cost by the way I think it's nine hundred and forty five dollars for access to the live sessions as well, and I think you have until what is it, September 30th or October 31st, October to be able to access these to, sessions. Yep. And the other nice thing about this is that if you if you get a uh, AEU credits or nursing credits, um, if you were attending this live, you would be limited to I think like 14 or 15 hours. But mm-hmm. with this, because you can attend sessions that normally would have been breakout sessions, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and you wouldn't be able to do you know go to all the breakout sessions, you're, you're actually going to be able to get more hours than you would have if you were in person. So hopefully that will help everybody. So uh, uh, definitely go to the ASC Association website, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited. I think, you know, the two sessions I did, even though I kind of screwed up a couple times during the, uh, the recording, I think it will come out very well. And then, Sue, something is really exciting going on with ARN right now. Yep, so the, their virtual conference is – um, available right now until July 31st. There's a lot of great content. Um, 
not all of it is related to ASCs, but they, they definitely do have some that are. And you also have access to some vendor information. Now, that is free with membership. And the membership right now, I believe, is one-year membership for $145 or a three-year membership for $306, which is the normal price um, of a two-year membership, I believe. So... So let's let's just um, make a big push for ARN. We we're members yeah. of ARN. We've been members for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I, I think Lori will say, even though Lori says she's never been to a, a conference on it, mm -hmm. um, it's still an extraordinarily valuable service, yeah. uh, just like ASC Association. And and this is quite a bargain to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Sue and I had hoped to go to the ARN conference yeah, this year, and we missed nice. out. Well, but even aside from from the um, conference, there's so so many good resources yeah. through AORN. So. And if you if you are a member or if you join before Sunday, you can get their um, 2020 written standards, recommendations and standards for a huge discount. Which obviously we did not get since I just paid the bill, Lori. I know. I <laughs> I'm not giving Fine. them a hard time, but I thought it yeah. would have been very polite of them. <laughs> yeah, the books are. I don't remember how much the book was, but it, yeah. it's, it's a, more it's expensive a nice than big my book. So yeah, it is. It gives it's, you a lot it's of good information. It's, yeah. Yeah. So let's make something yeah. clear too. You really need to be a member of ARN. This isn't just. I mean, it's not like required yeah. by law, but I can't imagine being able to to meet all the ARN requirements, uh, which we all have. To, you know, to meet in some level usually, uh, without having access to that that resource. And Laura, you 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 um, you you communicate with ARN on a regular basis. You know, questions. Of course, you know that's the service we offer to our. Yeah. our, our I, I will ARN. say though, if um, if you're strictly a GI yeah, center, right. it may not be you know financially prudent, um, but you'd SGA want to be, be. Yeah. in an association related to your specialty. Um, but they still do discuss a lot of things that, um, you know, if you are a GI center, it's all about sterilization, high level disinfection. There's a lot of things in there that are still um, applicable to you. So you'd have that as a resource as well. So it's, you know, something to consider because a lot of people say, oh, I don't, I don't do surgery. Well, they look at the whole picture as well. So just a thought. And, and I would just say that I've looked over uh, Sue's shoulder. By the way, we are in the same house here. <laughs> there we are. Uh, so they make that clear. Um, and uh, I've walked over her shoulder a couple times during the conference. The, the, uh, all the sessions that I looked over uh, were excellent. Um, so uh, very valuable. Um, let's see what else. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, um, just uh, yesterday in Congress, there was a big discussion about OSHA and uh, oversight. So we're going to talk about that when we get to our favorite discussion topic, which are N95. So don't let me forget to talk about that. And then for those of you that are from New York, and I can see and looking at our live group here that a lot of you are from New York, uh, please stay on right to the bitter end. So sorry about this. Uh, but something came out today with the New York Forward Safety Plan. We did blast it out this morning for all of our ambulatory healthcare strategies clients talking about a document that has to... Or, or, it's not so much a document, but a plan that has to be developed uh, for this. And uh, uh, so we just thought we would talk about that uh, for anybody that wants to stick around toward the very end of the session. So um, I want to uh, recommend, <laughs> I would like to uh, uh, welcome my dear friend, uh, Christina Benton here. Welcome, Christina. So Hello. Christina and I are, uh, Christina, we're going to be doing something, I, something 
major coming up. Can you remind me what it is that we're doing? Yeah, you know, I seem to think that we were doing something such as maybe a <laughs> virtual conference, maybe a two-day, maybe giving AEUs and CEUs to those that want to join us, talking about finance and accounting and reimbursement issues and bringing new cases into the ASC, A through Z. That's right. Sit in your office, figure at home. <laughs> So we're doing it at June 11th and 12th. Uh, uh, Christine and I will be presenting the Finance, Accounting, and Reimbursement Seminar. We have uh, another guest speaker. Uh, Anne couldn't join us today, by the way. Anne Gallier will be with us on that day. Um, but uh, uh, it's a two-day conference. Uh, if you want more information, go to ASCPodcast.com or either uh, our website at h-strategies.com or ccmpro.com. All of those websites will get you to a link to be able to uh, sign up for this wonderful conference. So two days of, uh, I think it's like 14 to 50, I can't remember all the, I mean, it's quite a number of, uh, of uh, credits that are available for uh, AS, uh, for CAS credentialed people and people that are credentialed as uh, coders and billers. Um, so please join us then. But meanwhile, Christina, Christina uh, will not admit this and probably doesn't want me to say this, but she is probably the nation's leading coding and billing expert in the ASC space. And uh, so I thought I would bring her on. No pressure. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, two things. First of all, we had to test Christina's new equipment. So we thought, why? what what better way to test the equipment to make sure it works live in, than to actually put her on live today? So if she disappears in the middle of this conversation, then we know it didn't work. But so far, it's been There's great. a problem. <laughs> uh, so, what, so one of the things, you know, it's one of my I told you so moments. Um, you know, at the very beginning, mm -hmm. when people were staying open uh, and continuing to do procedures without, uh, that were, shall we say, not urgent, um, the concern that we had had right from the very beginning is that insurance companies might start denying the payment for those cases uh, because uh, they, they were basically being done by an organization that had, had been living under an order to no longer do elective procedures. And sure enough, I'm right yet again. Uh, so one, one of our clients, <laughs> yeah, my staff is shaking their head. Um, <laughs> So, uh, indeed, our first client did get uh, a request for five medical records asking for documentation of medical necessity under an urgent situation. Um, and I suspect that we're going to start seeing more and more of that as time goes on. So I thought I would uh, kind of open that up a little bit to Christina. So so we know that uh, when you get that request, uh, you better go back to your medical records and, uh, you know, pull out all the documentation. Of course, it's too late to document uh, that, but uh, it isn't too late to make sure that all those documents are in a row. Uh, we have pushed out through our podcast and as well as at, and through the ASCPodcast.com website uh, over time uh, uh, documents that you can include in your medical record to show this medical necessity. Uh, we've talked about it extensively. We've talked about how your governing body minutes need to have uh, documentation of the decision-making process you went through in order to determine what cases are going to be um, uh, done uh, during a period in which you're under orders to not do elective surgery. Uh, so those are those are the things hopefully you've all done already. Um, I thought, Christina, given your expertise in the area of coding and billing, just a little bit of a, you know, so so what, when an insurance company comes back and asks for these medical records, what are they going to be looking for? If you can address that issue, what do you think they're what do you think they're going to be looking for in this situation? Well, they're definitely looking for medical necessity. Um, that's going to be pre, during, intermittent, 
or post COVID-19. They're going to be looking for why did you do the case? Right. Um, was there a medical necessity for it? Um, what were the parameters that your governing body had set up for you to be able to perform certain cases? Now, um, there are different executive orders per state, right. and they may have different definitions and guidelines, but it's ultimately going to be up to the facility and its governing body to determine which types of cases cannot wait six to eight weeks. Um, example, your trauma cases, such as your fractures, um, some of your cancer, any cancer type procedures, even some of your colonoscopies. Right. So um, the insurance company is going to be looking for um, the medical necessity as to why you felt that you had to do it. And that's going to take collaboration between what was already determined um, ahead of time before you saw these procedures or had these procedures um, come in and be performed in your surgery center. And then also the medical necessity of the physician's information, documentation. It's all going to go back to medical necessity and documentation within your medical record. The documentation of why you had to do it, um, why it couldn't wait. Um, and what was the medical necessity to having to perform it as far as is it some type of cancerous procedure or trauma that could not wait um, to be performed six to eight weeks later? Um, so I really, again, really reemphasizing the importance of making sure your um, uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, making the sure medical your records are there. Yes. Right, the medical records are there. The governing body has made those decisions that you have the documentation in your records as to how the what cases were determined by the the the, uh, the governing body to be done. Um, and, and I guess I do need, I need to emphasize, I know that, you know, centers had a lot of conversations about what, uh, cases they were going to do, uh, how they would determine those cases that were elective versus non-elective. What I'm, I'm fearful of is that maybe not all those, that maybe that entire conversation wasn't documented. So it's a good time to go back and make sure your governing body minutes truly reflect the conversation you had and as specific as you can be. Um, on that, I don't know what you think on that, Lori, because you, you and I both, you know, as surveyors look at these medical records, but, uh, I, that's what I'm going to be looking at, you know, when I go in uh, and do surveys is, you know, what was the decision-making process? When was it made? What was determined? And then of course, when did it turn off? In other words, you know, we, we had the, the point at which we decided to do, to, to make these, uh, non-elective cases, cases that we would do. But when we start opening up for elective procedures, we're going to have to have that the, kind of the reverse of that. In other words, as of such and such a date after this um, region met all the requirements to reopen, um, then we uh, we opened it up again. Uh, those decisions need to be documented by the governing body. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think going back to the documentation and the medical records about the um, medical necessity that won't change. Right. So just because we go back to normal operation or accepting all cases. Um, hopefully the physicians are well-versed in the beauty of great documentation of their uh, medical necessity, <laughs> and that will continue for the rest of their career. So what Lori is referring to, <laughs> which Christine, I don't know, we're, we're, we're dropping down a rabbit hole here, is that uh, even before COVID-19, um, one of the issues that we as surveyors had, and which I'm sure Christina as, you know, a coder uh, has had, is making sure that the medical record truly does reflect 
um, the medical necessity there. It's a CMS requirement, it's accreditation, it's, it, and it's a billing requirement. Well, also with the denial piece of it, though, too, is three pieces that I would automatically tell a client would be look at what the ex initial executive order was um, for that state. I would look at what your governing body had determined as far as those procedures that are considered urgent and not and could not wait six to eight weeks and then go look at your actual reporting of that procedure because even although that center may be getting denials and they may also think it's because of COVID-19 and that particular carrier stating that it wasn't warranting a service at that time, it could actually be a incorrect reporting of a procedure or a medical necessity because a diagnosis wasn't captured rather than it was during COVID-19 and the surgery uh, carriers not re uh, reimbursing for it. But these carriers, you know, they have to spit out what their stipulations are too, what their requirements are as well. So if they didn't have any guidelines out there, that's another fourth option or aspect to look at when you're looking at um, fighting the denial is or appealing it is that they did not have guidelines you went by your state directives that punted it back to your surgery center and in that respect then you were determining by your governing board which cases were going to be performed and which ones were yeah well said Okay. Now, any anything else we want to talk about with insurance denials? I think this is going to be, become a, uh, a hot topic uh, in the future. Um, so we'll 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 keep bringing Christina back <laughs> as we start learning more about this. I am curious, and and uh, you know, for our audience out there, uh, um, oh, we never talked about how to ask questions. Um, but for our audience out there, if you do have examples of this, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can uh, type it into your chat in the Podbean Live account. Uh, there's also, uh, Zach, what do you call it? It's, it's a chat also in YouTube or email yep, us. Chat in YouTube as well. Yeah. And, uh, or you can also email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. And even after today, if you're listening to a recording of this session, I would love to hear your stories. We'd like to talk about that and just kind of give some real-life examples of the types of situations we're running into. Or if you've had no problems at all and, and you know, uh, nobody even questions it. I doubt that'll be the case. But um, So, uh, good. Um, my, the next thing on our uh, discussion is our favorite topic in the entire world. It's N95 masks. Um, when I asked for volunteers to speak about it, for some reason, nobody spoke up. So um, <laughs> I will, uh, <clears throat> I guess I'm going to start. Um, but I asked Jenna and Lori to kind of chime in here. We don't want to spend a lot of time because we've talked about it a lot. But we do, let's just make a quick reminder that you need to make sure that if you are going to use the N95 mask, that there's a conscious decision. Um, at the present time, I don't, I'm not aware, though it might be a, a requirement in certain municipalities, um, but there is no uh, requirement from a federal level or any of the states that I'm aware of that you have to use N95 masks. Um, if you do, you need to make sure that you meet the requirements, which means that there needs to be fit testing done. You need to have a respiratory program. You need to do a health assessment, and you need to do training on the use of those uh, those things. Anybody else want to chime in on that? Change your order so that health assessment goes first before fit testing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
Um, no, I, I mean, I think that's, and I think we've talked about the different options for fit testing. Um, if you can't get the kits, look at your local health department, look at your local hospital, or, you know, reach out to your local health departments, hospitals, urgent cares, um, and, you know, any other service that outsources, uh, occupational health services. Um, I know in, in some places, the um, people who do ACLS and BLS training also provide um, N95 fit testing. So just, I mean, Google is your friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't just look for a fit test and say, oh, I can't buy one. It's back ordered. That's all I can do. Look into your other options in your area. And, and document what you're doing. Right. You want <laughs> to show that you have made a, um, a strong effort and a continuous effort to obtain the um, ability to do a fit test uh, because trying once, as you know, Jen said, and then not doing it again is not going to protect you, um, you as the um, the center, from protecting your staff. So you must make a valid um, and valiant effort to obtain that ability to uh, fit test your uh, your staff members. So yesterday, I was talking to a client who uh, mentioned that they were. Uh you know, that they were basically relying on the fact they, they were not able to do the fit test and they couldn't get a hold of the kit fit test. They couldn't get anybody to do the testing. And they're relying on the fact that, um, they could not do this, uh, to justify, uh, not following the, uh, the OSHA requirements. And I, I have a concern about that. Uh, and I just put it out again to our team here as to what their thoughts are. My, my concern is that OSHA doesn't, there really is no exception out there, uh, for, uh, for not doing fit testing uh, in the middle of this crisis. I mean, we can justify it. We can say we tried everything in our power to do there, it, but we still have There is a waiver for if you've already done it that oh. you don't have to do the annual. Right. Thank you. I forgot about that. Yes. Um, and I think somewhere, like what Lori said, is if you document everything you did and you cannot do it, I, but you're there going might to... be fit, But it's a little, it's kind of wishy-washy on their web, you know. There well, might be exceptions made, but you better document. And it's yeah. going to be harder to justify it when you're opening for elective procedures because the comment would then be made at that point that, well, you if you can't do the testing, why would you go and, and do uh, you know elective procedures, which you, you don't have to have done? Uh, so I think your argument's going to go away in that scenario. And, and the reason I want to bring this up, uh, first of all, I do want before I get on to the the, the congressional issue on the and OSHA oversight, I do want to mention that uh, a couple days ago I got a um, uh, a package or a um, a set of specs for N95 masks, and it was about thirty pages long. So I'm going through this and thinking I just scanned through it quickly and said, well, it's thirty pages long. It's got all this information I need, and then on the fourth page I noticed that the N95 uh, the picture of the N95 had ear loops on it. Um, and of course, those of you that know an N95 mask, uh, an N95 mask does not have ear loops. It's got tiebacks on it. And, uh, you know, and you can't do a fit test basically on a, on a N95 mask that has an ear loop. So I knew this wasn't a real true N95 mask, but when you read through the material, uh, it did say that it was an N95, but it did not say that it was FDA approved. It did not say it was NIOSH approved. It did not have any reference to OSHA at all. And the last 
20-some-odd pages were test results from these organizations that I had never heard of before. So I unfortunately had to write back to this particular client and said, you know, don't buy these. This is clearly not a, uh, this is not a mask that's going to meet all the requirements that, um, uh, that you need. Uh, so be very careful to watch out for what I would call non-genuine uh, N95 masks there. And uh, I think we've already talked about KN95s, which are not NIOSH and not FDA approved. They shouldn't be used uh, as a replacement for an N95 mask. So my concern, go ahead. The, the whole purpose is if you can't have a true secure fit, then the mask isn't doing its function. It's not asking as a That's what John is alluding to with the ear loops, because yeah. it's not a tight enough fit around your face and yes there are some um surgical masks that have the ear loops that you know if that's all that you you that fit that fits your face for surgery as long as it meets the requirements for the filtration is one thing but when you're talking a respirator there is no margin of error because if it doesn't fit it's just another face mask yeah okay well said um, so yesterday, apparently in Congress, there was a discussion or, uh, about the, or concern expressed about the lack of oversight by, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I have an N95 question. Oh, sure. I'm going to throw that in first. Um, does the fit testing hold true for KN95 masks? Well, KN95s cannot be fit tested. So, well, go ahead, Lori. No, what what John is saying is true. There are no fit tests that we're aware of for KN95s. Um, if you have a fit test for that product and it states that it is a true fit test, that's you know, then we'll see what you think. But um, your fit test has to be for that particular respirator. Right. Well, the, well, those fit tests aren't specific to the mask. But, but you would but have it, to have instructions for how to how to fit test right. the mask. Well, and, and, and most of the KN95s that I've right, anyway. yeah, most of the KN95s that I've seen, I, I I've heard that there are KN95s that do not have ear loops. I have not seen them, uh, but most of them, uh, you know, have ear loops, which again, as Lori said, could just you can't fit test them, or at least yeah. not properly. Um, and, and you can just go on the, um, the uh, is it the NIOSH website, I believe, to or, or the um, FDA website and the, you know, to see what has been approved and what hasn't. And I guess oh, over this whole process, there's been more and more companies, unfortunately, mostly from China that keep getting taken off their approved list. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, you just want to... you. You have we, to start we have with to stay product. diligent. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're if we're providing it for our staff, then we have to make sure what we're providing for them is appropriate to use. Right, and that brings up another important point. Uh, if you are using KN95s, and we certainly don't recommend them, certainly don't recommend them in the operating room. Um, they might be fine, you know, like in like in New York State, where I guess I guess it's a law now that we have to wear masks all the time. If you are using um, them in the uh, pre-op and the post-op area and in the, like your receptionist, I think that's fine. But make sure, if you are using them for those purposes, make sure your employees know that they are not wearing an N95 mask. 
um, you need to make it clear that this is not an approved, a NIOSH approved, uh, uh, an OSHA um, appropriate or uh, FDA approved device. Uh, otherwise, you could get yourself into trouble uh, if, in the end, people get exposed to uh, coronavirus and, and uh, decide to, let's say, sue you because you uh, didn't give them a, a mask that uh, met the requirements. So just be very careful with them. Yeah, and being the evil person that I am, which is very true, um, Christine and I will verify. Yes, it it wouldn't be wouldn't be a bad idea. Okay, if you're giving them KN95s to to use in the non-operative um, area or procedural area, that the that they sign off an acknowledgement that they know that those are not in in place of a respirator. Absolutely. Yeah, that's just protecting you as a center. Um, That's so again, getting to this issue, and I, I, I don't want to overkill this, but uh, so there is concern that OSHA, uh, on the part of Congress right now, that OSHA is not providing appropriate oversight. Um, we've kind of uh, been, um, I, I, I think we've liked the flexibility that OSHA seems to have shown us uh, to not rigidly enforce these rules right now during this time. Uh, but my concern now is if there is pressure on OSHA to to start enforcing those rules, you know, the major ones obviously that are applicable right now have to do with PPE. And probably the biggest one would be the N95 mask, which means that we might see enforcement actions being taken to assure that people are using them appropriately according to the standards, which requires the fit testing, the uh, health assessment, the um, uh, respiratory protection program, and all the education. Um, and enough said. Anybody else? First of all, does anybody have any questions about that? I don't see any more. Okay, enough about N95s today. Um, so uh, next thing, uh, topic today is guidance for employees and providers that are traveling. So this came about because the CDC has uh, provided guidance for travelers in the United States, and we'll provide a link to that particular guidance. Uh, basically, what it's saying is you need to be very careful about the travel outside of your region and consider that if you're going into a hotspot, so this is one of the concerns we have, for example, is that we have a lot of clients in New York City. Um, you know, if uh, I know Lori, Lori, you're in a community that if you go to New York City and come back to your community, you have to self-quarantine. Is that true? I, if I go anywhere out of the state of Massachusetts. Okay, so it's not just New York. Yeah. Yeah. So she has to self-quarantine for 14 days, right? Um, and then she can't go to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Which we're very concerned about because she gets kind of mean when she doesn't get her Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> I support my local businesses. <laughs> so any of our clients waiting for a Lori visit, you should know what she's sacrificing to come see you That's right. And she usually finds the one closest to your center. Trust me. <laughs> so, so the reason that we're bringing this up is because uh, you it might be something that you're going to have to consider in your policies and something that – so we do recommend that you provide the guidance. Again, we'll put it in the show notes here. That's provided by the CDC, and it's, uh, it's specifically for travel in the U.S. There's also a document for travel outside the U.S., but hopefully people aren't doing that, um, to uh, – as to what your guidance are, because the concern is if somebody travels outside of your region, then comes back, that's potent, there's a potential that they could bring something back to your uh, center. 
Um, and you might consider, and many of our centers have basically said, you know, if you go outside of our region and come back, uh, you can't come back to work for 14 days. You have to self-quarantine for those 14 days. So again, this guidance will, uh, will be there. Uh, Christina, you had an interesting story earlier about this, uh, because we're, we're not just talking healthcare here, but, um, you know, there, yeah. there's broad ramifications for this, uh, even outside of healthcare. Yes, um, it was just in regards to a friend of mine um, who's a pilot. Although there might be stipulations from the FAA or CDC that says you need to self-quarantine for 14 days after a flight, meaning the pilot, um, this particular person is being called out one, two days after he gets back into the States. So it's concerning because it's a risk for him and a risk for all those that travel in air flight um, for all the crew. It's, it's not a good thing. So um, there's no way around it. Unfortunately, you've got limitations in who can fly what planes, but um, it's, um, it's definitely something that's, that's been a big issue because it's putting everybody at risk. Yeah. And so basically don't say hi to the the pilot on the way off the plane. If you're (laughs) traveling. Hold your breath. Hold your breath. I will add a little tidbit. Those that are flying, uh, make sure you have additional masks. And I'm going to say what I'm hearing on the back end is that although the airlines are requiring that people, most airlines are requiring that people come in with a mask on. Once you're on the airplane, there's not much a flight attendant can do if somebody decides to take that mask off. Um, They're not going to... plow down the guy or the woman and say, sorry, but you're under arrest for not having a mask. Yeah. So it's hard to kick them off aware too. Of that. Yeah. You can't necessarily throw them out. Although my friend has tried, <laughs> um, but be aware of it. My hopes of becoming a flight attendant in my next life. Darn it. <laughs> That's it. So just kind of be aware of that and make sure you have a plenty of hand sanitizer and gloves and things when you're going in and um, just to be aware that somebody may take their mask off. Yeah, and one of the things that we've decided, too, in our company, for those of you that are uh, clients of ours, is that uh, we are probably not staying overnight. So uh, we're actually sending two people out on teams um, so that we'll make it a day trip. Even if it's as far as, you know, six hours away, we'll, we'll, we'll drive in and drive out. Uh, and Lori, uh, um, Lori and I are both surveyors of HCC. So is Jim. I don't know if Jim's still on. Um, uh, but uh, one of the requirements, uh, one of the things that they have told us is that we're now allowed to travel up to 800 miles uh, by car um, to get to our survey um, uh, instead of flying. That's not a, that's not really a good thing because unfortunately we don't get paid for those uh, those those travel times. So, uh, Jim, uh, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, Jim is uh, you know uh, uh, our life safety person. Um, uh, have you? Are you signed up for any surveys coming up? I mean, obviously, don't tell us. I actually, I actually have one in queue for uh, two weeks out from now. Okay. And it's in the city, so I'm not sure if there's any restrictions. Uh, I haven't been made aware of any yet. Yeah, uh, we'll have to talk about it because you and I haven't talked about that because internally we're still debating what we're going to do, you know, in the company. So, um, because we and I, I will. I will tell you, um, unless we're jumping the gun, since uh, Jim brought up that he's going out in two weeks, that if your AAA um, 
accredited, they have some guidelines moving forward that they probably have already sent out to you, you the centers that um, live with them, um, that if you're uh, due to be surveyed, that they are going to be querying you. Um, if it's a non-deemed survey, they're gonna call you two days prior to your um, team or your um, survey arrival, just to find out if there's been any incidences of COVID-19 or suspected cases in your center. And if you are deemed status, it is a surprise visit, but they're going to call you ahead of time as well. Doesn't specify how many days, but you know, if you get that call, you know they're coming. Right. Uh, Soon. <laughs> it said within the window, within their uh, window, they yeah, would call. Their windows a couple of months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I would presume if you get a call, it's going to be sooner. A little than more imminent. Yeah. Window. Right. Yeah. You know, so so that's kind of um, where that stands right now. While we're on that topic, uh, the surveyors that are on, let's just kind of talk a little bit about the survey things. So we know that both HHC and Joint Commission will begin doing um, all surveys um, starting June 1st. Um, we talked, uh, as Lori mentioned, those uh, restrictions. Um, we are, as surveyors, are being told, you know, specifically what to focus on. Uh, mostly, I mean, obviously infection control is going to be a huge issue. You know, on Jim's side, I'm sure environmental controls are going to be a big uh, topic. Jim, I, I'm sorry to put you on the spot here. You and I didn't have a chance to talk beforehand, but do you, do you have any, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure you've received some guidance. Any any pointers that you want to give to our clients that are waiting for a survey? What are some of the things that they've been kind of telling you? I mean, obviously you got all the regular stuff that you have. Are there any areas that they want you to concentrate on that are somewhat different? Uh, no, I haven't haven't had any directives as of yet. Um, you know, I, actually June first, they're they're getting back into operation, so that's only a couple of days out. So yeah, I'm sure that we'll getting getting some directives, you know, prior to the scheduled survey. So go for it, Laurie. <laughs> so here's a question to for you that I was actually speaking with someone today um, because of all the questions about air exchanges and oh, how long yeah. do we wait and this and that. And, you know, the, the person on the other end said, no one's real, no one's ever asked me this before. I've been through multiple surveys and, you know, the state has come in and, and AAA has come in and um, I've never been asked about my, you know, my air balance or, or my, um, you know, how many uh, exchanges do I have per hour? Um, so why now? Um, and I try to explain, you know, the, the importance of knowing it, but you as a, um, a life safety surveyor, do you think that's something that you guys may end up having to look at? I have always asked for an air balance as part, as part of my survey. Uh, I have a, a, a kind of a general descriptive sheet of requested documentation and the air balance report has always been on that sheet. Um, air balances are difficult to read. I mean, centers, most centers uh, get one annually, <clears throat> but it's very difficult to interpret uh, unless you have a floor plan that has, you know, the room numbers and the sizes of the rooms and such, because you're trying to determine the volume of the room and how many air exchanges per hour are required. But yeah, it's actually always been part of my survey. Okay. 
So I just think it's going to become more important as time goes on. And, and there has been some conversations. So those of you that listened in on a, a conference that uh, or um, session that I did uh, for SIS uh, with a couple of my colleagues, there was a, there was a note made that annual um, air balancing is required, and that is not true. We don't, we're, none of us are aware of any requirements for uh, annual air balancing. Uh, recommended. It's recommended, correct. And, of course, if your system is not operating uh, properly, or if you're, uh, you know, weekly or daily or whenever, however frequently you do tissue tests, uh, you find that your your um, room is not um, uh, uh, rambunctious. Right, it's not uh, meeting either the the airflow numbers or the the direction, the the uh, positive or negative airflow. Uh, that if if you're not able to get it back on track, then you uh, at that point you definitely need to do a uh, air balancing. Go ahead. Sir. Oh, so I'm there sorry. was a thing, and I apologize, going backwards, um, I just got a, a, from the FDA MedWatch, um, if anybody um, has been reprocessing your N95s uh, to make sure that you are doing it appropriately, because I guess there's been some issues that the not following the manufacturers. The cycles being used for specific approved sterilizers are have not always been met. So you need to make sure that if that is a choice that you've made, and there's nothing you can make that choice, um, that you're doing it appropriately and, and document that you are doing it as such, and that the products that you are reprocessing meets all the requirements Accept, uh, acceptable for reprocessing. So keep an eye out there, peeps. Well, and I guess another important point to make, sorry, Sue, um, okay. is the uh, is that if, remember, if you're opening for elective procedures, you are, in many areas, you're going to have to verify that you have an appropriate amount of PPE to meet non-crisis level volumes, which right. would presume that you're not relying on reprocessing N95 masks. So. Mm -hmm. And I right. think we have a so, question. You know, if you're only doing the urgent emergent, then, you know, the reprocessing is without, you know, they're not going to question you. But if you're opening for truly elective procedures that have been okay, you need to make sure that you have the equipment. I think most of the states are requiring a seven-day supply. Right. We have a question. Yep. About um, the exchange, if the need for 99.9% .9 air removal is that required for colonoscopies? So what we're referring to is that there are two recommendations that are coming. Is this from the CDC, Lori? Help refresh or Jenna? Um, Indirectly. Well, ARN and CDC okay. and ASH. Yeah, it's from the. But again, um, recommendations, not requirements. <clears throat> so let, let's be specific as to what the what those recommendations are first, and then we'll answer the question. So the recommendations are for if you have a COVID positive patient that you should allow for um, or air flow generating procedures. Right. Air flow generating procedures. Um, because of the fecal transmission of the virus, um, I believe ASGE has also recommended using the N95s for all of the cases or all of the GI cases. All lower and I GI. believe they're also recommending 
allowing the air um, the air uh, clearance time after procedures. I gotta double check because we just had this question before we went on air. Um, if they need to do it for both endoscopies and or you know upper endoscopies and colonoscopies and Lori and I were working on getting an answer. Yeah, and the the um the last thing that I could find they just refer to it as endoscopy. So yeah. they're not specifying if it's an upper GI procedure or if it is a colonoscopy. They're just calling endoscopy. So okay. that's kind of Okay. And she wanted to clarify, is this for COVID or suspected COVID? Well, COVID or suspected COVID, but if you're treating everyone as if they if are potentially COVID. infected. Okay. Right. I.e. you did Again, not test this is them beforehand. It's kind of like deciding to use N95s. It's, it's up to your center to decide yeah. how, um, how cautious you're going to be. And the other thing is the recommendations are uh, 99% or 99.9% there. So there's two different. It's like, uh, it's a range really, yeah. depending so upon your it, risk tolerance. You know, it, it, yeah. it saves you minutes or whatever on either end. Um, however, um, that's a decision as, uh, Jenna said, it's an internal decision on how you want to proceed. Um, if you have multiple rooms that you could do cases in one, close that off, when you're done and do the next case in the next room um, and then give that time, that room time to um, have a full circulation of the air to get the droplets to settle, then, then that's your best practice. But you guys are going to, you know, decide internally what your processes are going to be. Just make sure you have the documented rationale behind the decisions that you've made. So very um, important uh, in a in a um, uh, conference that was um, given the other day that John was a part of. Um, one of the panel, or you know, all of the people on the panel agreed. You you know, you're going to be following that. They recommended the CDC recommendations, um, and their requirements trump pretty much everything. But again, if you say you follow um, X Y Z organization, then you better have that documentation of what the recommendations of XYZ organization is. And if everyone else in your area is doing CDC, you're probably not going to fare well um, in the community or legal standings. It's just something. Okay. Um, All right. What was that, Zach? Um, someone's asking if somebody coughs or sneezes. Um, huh. let's see. Oh, do you want me to read? Okay. So people can yeah. see. Um, they said, hi, I understand the air exchange. If a patient sneezes or coughs during the middle of the case, and mm -hmm. that is an AGP or, um, aerosol generating procedure, can you start your clock of air exchange then, or do you have to wait until the case ends? All right, uh, let me try to understand. So I'm doing a procedure and the patient coughs or sneezes, which yep. then generates the aerosol. Remember, you're doing procedures on your patients and they all have masks on. What Unless you're under, 
Well, but they wouldn't be sneezing. And I do have a follow-up on that, just if it clarifies it more. Um, We currently shut our rooms down for 15 minutes after an airway generating procedure cases because of extubation. Which is fine, as long as your air exchanges corresponds with a 15-minute timing. Does that make sense? If your air exchanges are 15, you know, per per hour, whatever, you do the, the equation and it comes out that you have to wait 18 minutes and you're waiting 15 minutes, then you're not meeting your uh, your equation, whatever. If it was that you were at a higher air exchange, you might have lower. So it's it the, the time that you wait is based on what your personal air exchanges are in that personal operating room. Yeah, I think she's wondering, she said she gets that part of it. It's more like, when do you start the clock? I think it's her specific. After the patient leaves the room. Okay. When okay. you are done it and the room closes finished. and those doors do not open again until okay. that time period has been met. Okay. So I guess that brings us to one of the big topics that we have here. We do have a bunch. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. We Sorry. have a whole bunch of questions right. here. Um, oh my. <laughs> well, that's what we're here for. <laughs> uh, the N90, I haven't read that one there that, that um, you put on there. Is that a question? Or is this if N95 is unavailable, is there an alternative option for OR staff? Well, it said if we were only able to get oh, got it. the yeah. beginning, it was this one here that so, I wasn't sure if that was not getting in or not, the one on that you put on chat. Oh, yeah, um, so for one. this one, if we are only able to get one type or size of N95 mask, and staff fail the fit test, what is suggested to be used in the OR for that nurse? Or if we are unable, um, or if N95 becomes unavailable, is there an alternative option for OR staff? Again, let us uh, bounce back and kind of put this in perspective. There is no requirement for an N95 mask right now. It's your risk tolerance. If you are in a, if you decide I mean, I'll tell you what's been happening, too. And I know we have uh, some of the questions are coming from anesthesiologists, by the way. Um, <clears throat> you know, if I, a lot of the anesthesiologists are saying, I, I, I'm not going to operate unless you give me an N95 mask. Um, then and I think a lot of centers, the staff, too, to get the staff to come back. Come back, are right. Finding, to make them feel comfortable or, and safe to do their jobs. Right. Um, it's, it's the best thing to do is to provide these N95s. So your situation there is if you're not able to fit test them, if you're not able to, uh, if you're not able to meet all the requirements that are that OSHA requires uh, for uh, an, the use of an N95 mask properly, um, you really shouldn't, well, either should not be doing the procedure until you can get the proper amount of N95s, or you should, rem- you know, figure out what you're going to do without having an N95 mask. The other thing is if if other staff, you know, if you have N95s and just one staff member doesn't fit, you might want to look at your assignments and see, can you put that staff member in on procedures that that wouldn't require, you know, a a non-aerosolizing generating Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or aerosol generating procedure um, or reassign that person. I mean, obviously that's not going to work very well potentially with your anesthesiologists, but um, I, know. I, I would just kind of look at being creative with what, how you can rearrange your staff um, to meet the need. That one. Um, question, if, if you're under, um, a, if you're an under sedation case, case, which is not an airway 
an aerosol generating procedure and do you convert the case to be considered an AGP because the patient sneezes? Like, so if, if they're now generating, do you have to? A sneeze is still a droplet. You're, but, you're, but that patient that is not under general anesthesia is wearing a mask. They're wearing the mask that you provided when they came into the center. So if they sneeze, it's just like if they cough or if they talk loudly like John, they are potentially causing the aerosol to go straight into their mask. You wouldn't consider that an aerosol generating procedure. You know, you might do, uh, you know, your anesthesia provider who's up at the head of the bed under, you know, behind the, the surgical screen might mm -hmm. be more cognizant with their um, use of hand sanitizer and gloves, but that, that doesn't make it an aerosol generating procedure because at this point, then we could never operate on anybody um, other than intubate them because there's always going to be that potential. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my opinion, I don't see how that would translate into a, um, an AGP. No. I, I did want to address that. So one of the questions that you already uh, had, Sue, was uh, that the, the follow-up question was, if the N95 becomes unavailable, if there is there an alternative uh, option for OR staff? One of the issues is going to come out there. If you have decided that N95s are necessary for the procedure, or if your anesthesiologist or your staff requires it and they no longer become eligible, then you are technically no longer eligible to be doing elective procedures. Or those pr specific procedures that would fall in that category, that risk category that you have created right. as a um, need for a N95 mask. Right, particularly in those regions that are requiring you to verify. I mean, and for example, in New York, if you want to open, you're going to have to verify that you have an appropriate uh, amount of... Um, of uh, uh, Seven-day supply of PPE. Right, of PPE. For the um, procedures, the number of procedures and the procedures that you have um, agreed to do. Right. We are uh, backing up on the questions. I'll, I'll let poor Sue go. <laughs> if a patient tests negative for COVID within 48 hours prior to the procedure and they are asymptomatic upon arrival <clears throat> for their procedure, can you eliminate the N95s and air exchanges for an endoscopy center? Okay. So uh, again, you we need to point out that uh, the N95s are not required under the law or under regulation. So these are decisions that you would be making as part of your risk yeah. assessment. Uh, and when I say risk so, assessment, so I guess the question, yeah, yeah. Go, go the, you can, but you have to trust that your test was 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. And they didn't pick it up. Between you have to put your faith that your test was accurate and your patient didn't catch the disease in the past two days. Yeah. And a, a lot of centers are choosing to be more cautious than that, but that's up to your center. And you you but document that decision that you've made and that becomes part of your policy. Right. Yeah. Um, we are testing all patients. I, I think it's kind of split right now, that it, which centers are doing what, and it's, uh, some of it is based on what you can do. So. Mm -hmm. and, and, and keep in mind, too, again, as I've emphasized before, and, and, and I think people want us to give you firm answers and say that, you know, the law requires you to do this. That's, that doesn't happen, at least not yet. Um, you know, you know so. what, maybe what we can do is put up 
I have some examples from different health systems that have charts that based on this procedure, this is what they're doing. And I think that's kind of what some of my centers, they kind of looked at what other people were doing Yeah. and um, went, you know, made their own PPE chart basically. And maybe we can put that up on the ASC website just for people um, sure. to help guide them in making their decisions. Okay. That would be a good idea. Thank you. And I think this next question is, it's basically the same. We are testing all patients. We do not do positive patients. So do we still need an N95 and to wait the 15 minute air exchange time? So kind of going back to what you just answered, right? That Do your risk assessment and you will make that decision based on your, um, your findings and your um, willingness to accept the responsibility. Yeah, Cause you can never be a hundred percent sure, I guess, between, you know, between the no. unreliability of the test and, and how recently it was done, but you know, as long as you make Well, and decision. a lot of centers are finding like New York State requires you to do them within 72 hours of the tests within 72 hours, but a lot of centers are struggling to get that 72 hour back. window or meet that 72 hour window because, you know, there's more demand for the tests now as people start to reopen. Um, and so, you know, if people start bumping that window out further, the higher the chances that they might develop COVID-19 between when they get tested and when they come to you. To you. Yeah. yeah. And someone had mentioned on, on an earlier podcast that if you have a, a testing center that you're working with, maybe reaching out to them and just say you're sending your patients to them and ask how, how quickly the turnaround can be because sometimes they're willing to work with you if it's, you know, if they know that a procedure is writing on that and that kind of thing. Um, so this brings us to an interesting conversation. Again, uh, that SIS webinar that we had a couple days ago, an issue was raised regarding air exchanges and intubation. Uh, and to clarify this issue, uh, Lori did some research with ARN uh, guidance. Lori, do you want to talk a little bit about this, um, the intubation and the air exchanges? And I, I know <laughs> we're getting into some grass here, but um, it's important. Well, the, the, the long and short of it, um, the part that I'm trying to get clarified, which I probably won't be able to get until Tuesday, is one of the, one of the points that came up was that um, you're not supposed to set up your procedure, have your instrumentation open or whatnot until after the patient is intubated and you wait the Whatever the, whatever the allotted time based on your air exchanges are, and then you proceed. And that's what I'm trying to get clarified. Um, what we did come to an understanding is that theoretically um, it is, if you have a positive patient, there's one way to follow, but I'm very confident none of you are taking known positive patients at this time. So I'm not even going there. But if you have, um, if you do an intubation on a patient, um, it's, it's recommended that um, your anesthesia provider and whoever's assisting them in the intubation are fully dressed in uh, PPE, including a respirator of an N95 or equal quality. Um, if there are other people in the room, they should be as far from the field as possible, at least that six foot distance, if not further, 
um, and that you should be waiting the 14, well, I'm saying 14 minutes. You should be waiting that time um, that you've determined uh, before someone else comes into the room or opens that door from when you did the actual intubation process. So yes, now we're adding time on the start of the procedure. Um, if, if that makes sense. And I'm, I, again, when I speak to them, I will also clarify, does everyone in that room need to have N95s or just the ones at that field in the direct path of the flow? So again, to put then, this, um, I, I just want to back mm -hmm. up and put this in perspective. So what, what we're talking about here is that uh, this is an AORN recommendation. We know that <clears throat> We know that there is no regulatory requirement here, but if you do follow AORN standards and if you're following closely those standards with regard to aerosolizing procedures and general anesthesia where somebody is being uh, intubated, uh, AORN is now recommending what Lori is talking about. And what makes this more complicated is that air exchanges are now have to be calculated. And this has opened up a whole new... Um, um, Ball of wax. Ball of wax, yeah, whatever. Um, because we had talked about the about the air exchanges that needed to you needed to go through at the end of the procedure, but this is a whole other thing uh, that will further extend. So, uh, again, I want to talk a little bit later about how long these cases are going to be and how long our turnover is going to be after this, because I know a lot of physicians are saying, uh, you know, by the way, I expect to be back to full volume in a couple days. Uh, that's just not going to happen. But I'm sorry, go ahead, Laura. I want you to continue, I, but I want to put it into perspective here that we've been talking about not having to N have N95s because it hasn't been a regulatory requirement. But if you're following N uh, ARN standards, now you're you're in a situation where you might have to do it if you want to follow the standard. Right. And, and then on the flip side or the counter end, however you want to, you know, when you are finished the case, um, your time allotted to wait begins after the patient leaves the room. So the patient is extubated and they can sit there for however long it takes. Then when you open the door, that starts your clock for your air exchanges to re, you know, recalibrate. Re, re, uh, so at that point is when you would start your, your timing for when your staff can come in the room without N95s on because of the aerosolation of the extubation. Um, so, you know, there's things that I want to get more understanding because going on their FAQs, you know, their, their frequently asked question sites, it's, bits and pieces. And again, I, I think that many of us are putting them together. Um, and, and again, it's these are recommendations. These are not rules or requirements as of yet. Um, that could change at any time. And, and uh, they could also become the standard of care, which we know is, is an, even if a regulation doesn't fall into place uh, there, once it becomes a standard of care, then a surveyor would enforce it as though it were a regulation. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, so that's, it's a tough one to, to figure out. And, and um, I think it was yesterday in John's daily update, we put the, the 
the question and answer that AORN had on their website. Again, it was dated back in April. I mean, now we're we're in going into June now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, things have changed. Whether or not their position has changed, I don't know. That's why I want to speak to them directly. But, you know, it's it's a it's a sticky wicket, as they might say. Um, so you that's why you you do a lot of internal discussion and you have that um, that that multi faceted team it's not one person's decision unless it is but then they're taking the full responsibility but if you have a good cohesive team that's there for the common goal then then you'll come to a good decision one that you know you can live with and and that's the main thing if you know you want to you want to make sure you as an administrator, you as the clinical director, you as an owner, you as a physician are not putting any of your comrades at risk right. or your patients. So I know that there is a goodness in everybody's heart when it comes to this. Um, so that's what you have to think about right now. Yeah, we've lost millions of dollars. There is no getting around that. But at what expense is it to get that extra two bucks and 99 cents, you know, in the long run. Um, so, you know, we're trying to give you as much information as we can so that you can make the decision that's going to work best for you. Um, right. Because otherwise we're going to drive ourselves crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know we say this over and over again, it comes down to how much risk that you, your organization is willing to take. And it's important as you as administrators and nurse managers who, because it's not often that I, I see some of my medical directors are, are on here and, and they're taking this in, but uh, it's your, your responsibility as an administrator and nurse manager to make them well aware of the risks that they're taking if they don't opt to go with the N95s, if they don't opt to follow the requirements of the N95s, if they do have the N95s, et cetera. So go ahead. So we have another question. um, Go ahead. Uh, Knowing that N95 masks are not required, is there a recommendation on what PACU staff should wear if all the patients are extubated before they leave the OR? What they they should do is they should wear... um, their their PPE. They should be wearing um, procedural. Their their mask, procedure mask. They should have eye protection on. They should have their gloves on. They may want to wear gowns, depending on the patient that came out of the room. If it was a you know a sedation patient for someone that had a knee scope, they may not choose to wear a mask, uh, wear a gown. But if it's a patient that just had an upper GI, uh, mm-hmm. you know, gastro. They may want to wear, uh, you know, a gown. Um, so it's it's you're going to have to, again, you're going to have to do a, that risk assessment on the type of procedures um, and patients that you're bringing out. You know, um, it's it's that sort of thing. But at a minimum, I would say they want to wear eye protection, masks, and definitely gloves. Mm-hmm. And know, because as you. If you, mm-hmm. You've mentioned before, you know, when they're extubated, so it, it's good that that's done before they come out, obviously, but, you know, they're still more prone to coughing, to having, you know, issues there with yep. their throat just because and, of that, so. Right, and and if if that's a concern that, that you as a facility have or you as a staff member have, then you 
verbalize that to your um, management team and say, you know, I'm recovering all of Dr. Jones's upper GIs today. I would feel more comfortable wearing an N95. Or on the flip side, the, the, the center might say, we're doing these procedures. We we want you to wear an N95 right. and here it is. Here's your fit test, blah, blah, blah. Remember, if you're the employer and you deem the, the um, employees should be wearing that, then you're responsible to make sure they do. Right. right. Okay. So you never can err on the side of highest standard. Remember that you can always err on the side of not providing the minimum think about that. Yeah. And, and recognize that we are going to be uh, seeing lawsuits after this. Um, and we already are seeing the billboards going up from trial lawyers who are, uh, you know, kind of addressing the issue. Um, so be prepared, you know, for lawsuits. Don't, you know, we have to take this seriously, not just the, the regulatory side of it, but the, um, um, the, the legal side too. Uh, have we killed the subject of air exchanges and 95s and all that? Does anybody want to spend the next two hours I'm, talking? I'm about busy it? going to answer a client who's currently asking you about the subject. <laughs> so I guess I'm not done. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read the podcast. We can be done. <laughs> yeah. I, I have the AORN um, statement in front of me. Go ahead. The, the yeah. question is um, Can the surgical team stay in the OR during intubation and start the surgical procedure before? the minimum amount of air exchanges are complete. Now, again, this was answered in April, April 17th. Their answer is ideally <laughs> intubation should occur with a minimal number of personnel at the head of the bed, utilizing properly fitted surgical N95 respirators, which have not been reprocessed, eye protection gowns and gloves. So there, that's the highest standard right there. And that's what they say. And then if the surgical team remains in the OR, with the necessary PPE, which I want to get clarified, um, they should distance themselves from, from the head of the bed during the intubation. Once the patient is intubated and stabilized, surgical antisepsis, draping, and procedure could begin without waiting for full air exchange. However, no one should enter or leave the OR during this initial time frame. So again, the doors remain closed. So if your whole team's in the room, you'll be able to start at some point based on this statement. But if the surgeon's outside because he's dictating his prior case, he theoretically should not be coming in that room until that time period has passed. So again, hopefully I can get more clarification, but that's what they, that's their recommendations. And as John said, if you're following AORN guidelines, that's their recommendation. And remember when he comes in the room, you got to do a timeout. So <laughs> I just thinking of that. Oh, oh my Lord. I think what's going to happen is we're going to find doctors really upset at the amount of time that it takes to do these cases. And, and we need to prepare. We need to, to, uh, to make sure we manage their expectations here because there is no way on earth we are going to get close to full volume 
uh, or, the you know the the minimum turnover that our our clients are used to our our, uh, our physicians are used to. So manage their expectations. Expect them sure. to be not very happy with this. Uh, but we but you are you know the nursing staff. You are there to protect the patients. You've got to you've got to enforce these rules. Yeah. Um, don't, don't spring it on them the day they come for their first procedure. That's, Precisely. Yeah, have this conversation. We've already, I've had uh, board meetings throughout the, the last couple, uh, you know, weeks where this conversation comes up because inevitably the doctors are saying, you know, so what time in, what day in March or what day in June am I going to be able to get back to my full volume? And of course, we're saying you'll be lucky if you get to that full volume in 2020. Um, and now one thing I have said is that what we might find is that we might be able to do the same number of cases that we were doing pre-COVID. It's just that it's going to take us longer to do that. In other words, we're going to have overtime. We're going to have, you know, sometimes weekends, et cetera. But don't expect to be able to squeeze the same amount of cases into the same time frame like we were able to do pre-COVID. Sue, uh, this is real time, I think. Uh, We'll we'll put some sh- things into the show notes. Uh, something came out recently, but I, I I think given that we're at an hour and fifteen minutes, uh, we don't want to go into that level of detail. But I just want to <clears throat> point out that more guidance has just come out in the few last few minutes about uh, reuse of um, just an, an FDA uh, safety uh, advisory about, we, we about reprocessing. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah there's, so there's more specificity yeah. that just came out. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Um, Let's move away. Uh, we'll let our uh, nurses uh, relax for a bit. I'm going to put Alex on this. I guess me too. Um, <laughs> where is that? Where are those notes, Alex? Why don't you start? Because I can't they're, find it. <laughs> they're up above. We skipped them. Got it. I see it now. <laughs> so just to give a little bit of background. Um, so as part of the CARES Act, um, the HHS, which is the uh, Health and Human Services uh, Secretary was able to give out um, two sets of money um, to providers. That first set um, was given out through an automatic grant. Um, it came through on your bank statement as HHS grant. And that was automatic. And then you had to sign an attestation saying that you had received it. Um, and a number of other attestations. And then there's now a second wave of that. Um, and there was a number of providers that received it, um, the second wave of money automatically. Um, and then there's also the ability to apply uh, to receive a portion of that second um, grant amount. So if you have already see, received um, a payment as part of the second round, or you want to receive a payment as part of the second round, um, you have to do a couple things. Um, you have to submit tax information um, and financial information. Um, so the financial information is your losses um, due to COVID from March and April of 2020. And the tax information is either your 2018 or 2019 tax returns. And what they're doing is they're looking to compare um, those, either of those years, the net receipts from either of those years um, to the 2% or 2% of those net receipts, sorry, 
um, to the losses um, sustained in April and March um, to and, the amount that you've already received. Right. Another way so, of saying it is that you want to calculate your the most recent year, the 2% for the most recent year that you file a tax return. That'll give you a number. Let's say that's $100,000. If you've received 40000 in your first round, you would be eligible for more money. Maybe not the sixty thousand, but you'd be eligible for more money. If, on the other hand, you earned one hundred and forty thousand dollars and your only two percent was a hundred thousand, then you might uh, find yourself in a position where you might have to pay back some of that money, and you certainly wouldn't be eligible for more. So uh, that that's our reading. This is evolving. This is the best information we have available at this time, and we will put in the show notes the link. You probably already have it, but the link to be able to file those uh, those reports. And we should also mention, too, um, just like with the second round of HHS grants, there are attestations involved with the second round. Right. Um, uh, and ASC Association has provided some guidance on, on the attestation and clarifications that will help you. There, there's, a, there's a lot of attestations in there. Uh, a little hard to read, but ASC Association is very good about uh, their position based upon their conversations with HHS. Uh, on that funding. So again, what we're referring to is under the CARES Act, you would have automatically received if you were, so this is for centers that are doing Medicare patients, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Medicare um, fee-for-service cases, uh, which like in our community, we live in upstate New York and Rochester, New York, there's almost no, you know, pure Medicare up here. Almost everybody is under a, a managed care program. So uh, centers in this area would, would not necessarily receive a lot of money, uh, depending upon how many cases they were doing. But if you're doing a lot of pure Medicare, then you probably already received a check and hopefully a second check. If you have received that second check, you're probably not eligible for additional funding. Um, that's yet to be seen as to whether there, uh, there will be a third round. Uh, are, are there any questions on any of that? Oh, and, uh, so bouncing back, believe it or not, we still have questions on the previous topic. So, uh, Alex, do you have anything else to, to chime in on uh, on this one? Nope, I think we covered it. Okay, and again, we'll put some information in the show notes. I'm going to have a very heavy – wait for tomorrow for me to get all these show notes up. <laughs> Go ahead, Sue. If we do this minimization with the surgeons not coming in the operating room, can the surgeon come immediately in the room with an N95 mask, gloves, and goggles to position the patient, then leave the room to scrub? We use a HEPA filter on the end of – endotracheal tube and an intubating box not based on the recommendations if you are truly doing your um air um air exchanges for your air quality to um stabilize every time you open that door the clock restarts so, yeah, that doctor can, can come in and out all he wants, but you haven't waited that time. So they're better off either being in the room during intubation and doing the whole thing, you know, being there back. ready to go, as opposed to standing in the hallway, because then they're going to wait that time because you're going to have your little hall monitors out there saying, don't touch that door, don't touch that door. Mm-hmm. And your circulator will be <clears throat> barreled against it from the inside. So... That's based on, you know, the way it's the way the air balancing works. You have to wait the full time. And every time a door opens again, it's reset, reset, reset that stopwatch. Okay. Uh, Any more questions? I don't see any more. 
Did you check that website? Yep, I've been looking. Okay. Sorry, we're just checking because we've gotten a lot of questions during this. Thank you for uh, my panelists here. You've all been incredible. Um, Thank you for your time. Uh, We're not done yet, though. Um, (laughs) Let's just talk briefly about the PPP program. Uh, I don't want to go into a lot of details on our last last podcast we did. I'm sorry, I'm going to put Zach on the spot because I had him do research. So during our last podcast, Zach talked a little bit about the requirements for uh, reporting under PPP. Zach, did did you find anything different from what we had before? Again, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. Not a ton different than from what we've already reported, really. Okay. Um, So let's just kind of quickly summarize is that the the uh, um, the uh, the SBA, the Small Business Administration, has issued uh, what they call interim final rules, and this was on May 22nd. We'll put the links in the in the show notes, which are going to be very long now, <clears throat> to the to those rules. You're going to want to check in on them. Basically, what's going to happen is you're going to have to fill out a form. I don't know the deadline yet. Do you, Zach? It, it'll, it's actually going to be after the end of the eight-week period in which you uh, – the, the eight-week period of um, – that you're uh, monitoring or that your, uh, um, your, your payroll is going to be uh, applicable for. Uh, you're going to have to um, fill out a form that looks suspiciously like a tax return um, with schedules and subschedules. Uh, you're going to probably need your accountant to help you with that or your trusty local um, regulatory consulting firm. And... Uh, uh, make sure that you've uh, got excellent documentation during the entire time that you uh, uh, you are paying uh, employees under the PPP program. So uh, more news to come as we get better information, and I will provide some links in the show notes for that. Uh, we're at an hour and a half again. I think, Lori, we're going to have to skip our <laughs> some of those conversations we we're going to have about uh, the CAST program. But uh, let me just encourage people, if uh, just very quickly, let's just say now more than ever, it shows the importance of having administrators and nurse managers that are on top of the regulatory requirements and having access to appropriate information. We at the ASC podcast with John Gailey, we at Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, that's what we do for a living, is provide that type of uh, support for you. And, and uh, of course, ASC podcast is free. It'll always be free. We do have additional resources that are available. Some of them are paid um, on our website at ASCpodcast.com. But please, you know, keep on top of this. Listen to our podcast on a uh, weekly basis or however frequently we, we're, we're erratic right now uh, as we try to keep up with the news. Um, but now more than ever, your, administ- your governing body needs to understand the importance of you having the time to keep on top of these regulatory requirements, to be ready for surveys and to uh, avail themselves of all that information out there. You need to be a member of your state association. You need to be a member of ASC association. Uh, you need uh, to... Uh, uh, you know, if you if you don't have uh, a lot of our administrators out there, I know you're actually doing procedures uh, at the same time, and and uh, you have a very difficult time t- staying on top of it. So uh, make sure that you know where those resources are to keep on top of it. Lori, any any last minute thoughts from any of our uh, of our panel here? It's Friday. It's four. No, oh, it's three thirty. <laughs> and the sun just came out here in Rochester. After it's downpour. Yeah, by the time I get upstairs, it uh, will not be out, I'm sure. I want to thank all of our listeners. I'd like to thank all of our uh, our, uh, <laughs> our panelists here. Um, and uh, please, everybody, have a good weekend. Uh, let's uh, lead you out. And uh, we'll probably uh, meet up again in another uh, week to uh, have another uh, 
uh, discussion. Hopefully we'll have uh, better news at that point. And give me two seconds here. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kalaritis and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, PHG, Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and our newest sponsor, Intelair. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at, a, at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.